At the turn of the century, a USA Today article was written about the billionaire Ted Turner, the founder of CNN, the owner of the Atlanta Braves. Towards the end of the article, Turner explains his view of life. He says, quote, you know, I'm not looking for any big rewards. I'm not a religious person. I believe this life is all we have. I'm not doing what I'm doing to be rewarded in heaven or to be punished in hell. I'm doing it because I feel it's the right thing to do. Almost every religion talks about a savior coming. When you look in the mirror in the morning, when you're putting on your lipstick or shaving, you're looking at the savior. Nobody else is going to save you, but you yourself. Now, most of our culture wouldn't put it so crassly, but yet that's much of the way the world around us lives, a kind of autosoteric theology, a self-salvation. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You can do it. Put a little power to it. But when we open up our Bibles, we see a different story. Namely, that we are in need of a Savior. That we have rebelled against our Creator and we need one to rescue us. It's really a theme that encompasses the whole of the Bible. Because it starts out in Genesis with a tremendous problem of mankind rebelling against the Creator. And the promise of a coming one who would crush the seed of the serpent. It's a story that really in many ways climaxes here in the Gospel of John with this glorious portrait of the Savior given to us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus himself. The Gospel of John uh, is famous for its I am statements, right? Um, Over and over throughout the Gospel of John, John will sometimes record Jesus making I am statements without any kind of, uh, I guess it's called a predicate nominative on it, where Jesus just makes statements like, in John eight fifty eight, before Abraham was born, I am. Or, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. Or like we saw earlier on in John 13, I'm telling you, Jesus says, beforehand, so that when it comes about, you will know that I am. But then there's other I am statements throughout the Gospel of John that that also highlight who Jesus is, not only as the I am who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, but also things like I am, John 10, the good shepherd, I am the door, John 8, I am the light of the world, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. And here we have another one of those I am statements in John 14, 6, a classic statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But this does come in a context of which John is communicating to us as John is recording those last hours of Jesus' instruction to his disciples in what's commonly called the upper room. It's the evening before Jesus' execution. It is a, what's commonly thought of as the last supper or, or uh, probably better, the last 
Passover, the first Lord's Supper, is what's taking place here in John 13 through 17. And in the context of John 13, you remember it was Judas who went out from their midst to be betrayed Jesus. And Jesus says it's going to happen before it happens so that the disciples would know when it happens that their boat shouldn't be rocked, but that they should even have greater confidence that Jesus said it was going to happen. And also Jesus foretells, prophesies of Peter's denial of him. That's at the end of John chapter 13. <coughs> and it's towards that, that, that last section in John 13 that this conversation continues as Jesus senses that his disciples are disturbed by the reality that he's going to be leaving them. They're disturbed by the reality that this teacher who they have devoted the past three and a half years of their life to is not going to be with them anymore. And so he says in 14.1, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. <coughs> in my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So last week we saw Jesus promises a place, a place he calls the Father's house, a place that he promises for those who believe in him. He also promised that he was making preparations and we talked about that as the, the preparation that he would make through his death, burial, and resurrection so that they would be fit for heaven. And then we also say, saw his promised presence, that he promised that he was going to come back so that they would be with him for all eternity. These are glorious promises and truths for us to bank our life and our eternity upon. And so it's after this, these uh, amazing statements that Jesus makes here that John records Thomas's interaction with Jesus. And in 14.4, Jesus at the end of 14.4 says, and you know the way where I am going. So Jesus tells his disciples, he assures them that they know the way. And, and it's a true statement because they knew him, which he's going to say in a minute here, not in a minute, maybe seconds, uh, that he is the way. But then notice Thomas's response in verse 5. <coughs> Thomas said to him, Lord... We do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? So Thomas, he, he often gets a bad rap in the Gospel of John, right? He's doubting Thomas. He's a guy who often has a lot of questions. But he asked Jesus, he says, uh, we, we, he says, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? In other words, uh, what, you know, what's the address, Jesus? You know, I could... Put it in my, you know, Google Maps and find the way there and then we can follow you there. And it's within this context that Jesus makes a shocking statement. It was, would have been shocking in the religiously pluralistic culture that Jesus was speaking to in the first century. It's shocking in our own day because it, it just feels so narrow, <laughs> He responds by saying in verse 6, I am the way 
and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus says in no uncertain terms that he is the way. And the way to where? Well, within the previous context, the way to the Father's house, the way to heaven. He is the way to heaven. No one comes to the Father in the Father's house except through Jesus. Nobody comes apart from him. These would have been, and are today, horribly offensive words. And yet, it's actually not something that's isolated that Jesus says here. In fact, it's a theme that we see throughout the Gospel of John. (coughs) For instance, at the end of John chapter 1, as Jesus has uh, called forth Nathanael to be a follower of him, when he says that he saw him under the fig tree, and Nathanael was shocked by this, how do you know me? It's in that context that he says to Nathanael in chapter 1, in verse 51, truly I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is clearly an allusion to Genesis I think it's chapter 32 or so where Jacob has that vision of God in a stairway to heaven where there was angels ascending and descending. And here Jesus says, you will see angels ascending and descending upon me. Namely, I am the stairway to heaven. I am the way that you get to God, Nathaniel. We see this as well later on the next chapter when Jesus says to those religious leaders who are very enraged that he has just driven people out of the temple and in that context, Jesus says what? Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And then John records that he was talking about what? The temple of his body. Well, for for us, that might not seem tremendously significant, But the temple was the way to God. That was how you met with God. It was the very presence of God himself where the the Hebrews would meet with God through blood sacrifice in the temple. And so for Jesus to say, I am the temple, is for him to say, I am the way to God. I am the very presence of God. We see it in John chapter 10 with Farming language, sheep farming language, where Jesus says, I am the door, right? I am the door. In other words, I am the way into the sheepfold. I am the way into the people of God. And so, again, this is a theme (coughs) that the Apostle John has been tapping into throughout the Gospel of John, namely, that Jesus is the way to God. That there is no other way. And then this becomes a a, a common theme throughout the rest of the apostolic message. It's no wonder that in Acts chapter 4, in verse 12, we hear Peter declaring boldly, there is salvation found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven 
that has been given amongst men whereby we must be saved. There's no other name. Salvation is found in no one else. Or how about the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. He says, there is one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so in this glorious statement that Jesus says here, we really see three glorious truths about Jesus that we should believe. The first is that Jesus is the reconciler. He is the way. He is the way back to God. Man has been estranged from God. Man is lost. Man has gone his own way. But Jesus is the way home. Jesus is the way to heaven. Jesus is the way of reconciliation, peace, and forgiveness with this great God. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, he says, Christ is the way, the way to heaven and peace with God. He is not only the guide and teacher and lawgiver like Moses, He is himself the door, the ladder, the road through whom we must draw near to God. He has opened the way to the tree of life, which was closed when Adam and Eve fell by the satisfaction he made for us on the cross. Through his blood, we may draw near with boldness and have access with confidence into God's presence. Jesus is the way back to reconciliation with the creator. So it's like the adage says, know Jesus, K-N-O, Jesus. Know God, K-N-O-W, God. Know Jesus, N-O, Jesus. You say no to Jesus, N-O, know God. Jesus is the way back to God, and apart from him, you will be lost forever. Many years ago, a missionary hired a guide to take him across the vast desert. And if you've ever traveled in desert lands, you know that it's very difficult to travel because landmarks can be undecisive because the sand can change. It's kind of like traveling in the snow, I guess, in northeastern Ohio, when it's, everything's blanketed by snow and you can hardly even tell where the road is at. <coughs> well, in a similar way, in desert culture, you need a guide. They arrived at the edge of the desert and the missionary saw before him all this, as far as the eye could see, all this sand and no footprints in front of him. Then he asked the guide, Where is the road? With a reproving glance, the the guide replied to the man, I am the road. (laughs) In a similar way, Jesus is the road. He is the way. It is only through him that you can get to the Father. Matthew Poole in his commentary on this verse observes it is pleasant to notice how Christ continues this discourse to the disciples like a mother speaking to a little child crying after uh, after her when she prepares to go abroad 
The child cries and the mother bids it be still for she is only going to a friend's house. The baby still cries. She tells it she is only going to prepare a place for her there where it will be much happier than at home. The child is still not yet satisfied. She tells it again that though she goes, she will come again and then it shall go, then it shall go with her and she will part from it no more. The child is still yet impatient. She endeavors to still it, telling it that it knows where she is going and it knows the way by which she goes, if need be, it may come to her, namely through him. Jesus is the way. So, my friend, the message line of the Bible is that we have been alienated from God. Sin always brings rupture in relationship. And it's true with our Creator. Because of our rebellion, because of the way in which we have not obeyed him, not lived as we ought to, we need reconciliation. And there is only one reconciler. Jesus is the way back to God. So friend, if you're sitting here this morning, you've not yet been reconciled to God. You've not yet been made at peace with God. You have to come to God through the Lord Jesus. He is the only way. No one comes unto the Father but through him. And my friend, if you try to come any other way, you do so to your own peril and destruction. He's the only way. He is the way back to God. If you don't go through him, you do so and will endure his just wrath and indignation for all eternity. I don't say that lightly. I say it because it's the truth of God's word. You may be sitting here kicking against this, thinking, well, why is there only one way? Well, imagine with me for a moment a person who's on a plane And all of a sudden, one of the engines of that plane catches on fire. And the plane takes a sharp descent. And all of a sudden, those oxygen masks that they always tell you about at the beginning of the flight pop down. And imagine the pilot gets on the the speaker and tells you that there's going to be a crash. But there is a way of escape. There are parachutes underneath your seat that you can put on. Would you say, well, why is it only that way? I mean, why can't there be another way? I mean, that parachute, it's uncomfortable. It feels so narrow and constricted. No, you would be relieved. Yes, let me put on that parachute. This is my salvation. This is my way of escape. This is my owl. This is going to rescue my life. And same thing as well for you, dear Christian. Are you embarrassed that Jesus is the only way? Don't be. This is the good news. Sinners can be reconciled to their God. You don't need to be ashamed of it. Die to the smiles and frowns of the world. 
is not only the solo reconciler, he is, secondly, the supreme revealer. Notice the next phrase Jesus says, I am the way and I am the truth. The truth. What does Jesus mean by this? Truth is that which corresponds to reality. And I think what Jesus is saying here is I am I am the true God. I'm the true revelation of God compared with all the other false gods and false religions. I am the truth. And this has, again, been a theme that John has been communicating throughout the Gospel of John. That's how the Gospel of John started, remember, when, Jesus, when John writes, in the beginning, namely, if you were to rewind all of Time back to the very beginning and look into eternity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Well, what is a Word? A Word is a communication. A Word is a revelation of what's in my heart. When, when the Bible says that Jesus is the Word and is God, He is the Supreme revelation of God. <coughs> we see it later on in that introduction to the Gospel of John in John 1.18 when it says what? No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, the only begotten God who is in the bosom or in the chest of the Father has explained him or made him known. That no one has ever seen God, but Jesus, as that only begotten God, is the explainer of God. He is the revealer of God. So again, if you reject Jesus, you're rejecting God. Jesus is truth incarnate. Truth in the flesh. This past week in our home, <coughs> we were reading uh, about the book of Daniel, from the book of Daniel, about Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. You're probably more familiar with their pagan names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in Daniel chapter 3, you remember <coughs> that emperor of the great Babylonian empire, the one who Designed and was responsible for those hanging gardens of Babylon. He basically declares himself to be the true God. And he builds a statue of himself some 90 feet tall. And I, and I, I can't help but wonder because this, uh, this is on the heels of Daniel chapter 2 where we remember it's the Babylonian Empire that's the gold head on that statue. And, and uh, perhaps, sadly, Nebuchadnezzar responded with pride to that vision that he had in chapter 2. But regardless, what we see in chapter 3 is, is Nebuchadnezzar propping himself up as, as a deity in which all the peoples and the nations, when they hear the music, are to bow down in worship and adoration of the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. 
You remember those three exiles, those three Hebrew young men, boldly as they, you know, there was tattletales, tattletaling on them, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not bowing down. They need to be arrested. You know, there's always the, the moral police around who, who don't like the protest. <coughs> and, uh, but nonetheless, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego find themselves standing before the most powerful man on planet Earth at this point. And Nebuchadnezzar has already threatened anybody who does not bow to be thrown into the fiery furnace. But this is a little bit awkward because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego evidently were, were kind of in part of that, uh, the, those wise men, part of that ruling advisory council to the king. <coughs> and they say to King Nebuchadnezzar, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer according to this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love that passage. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to that statue. They refused to give deference, to give the tip of the, the hat to the gods of Babylon or to that statue. And in a kind of civil disobedience, do so at the risk of their own life. Because as you know, the story unfolds and they are tossed into the fiery furnace. And the furnace is so hot that even the valiant men who are there to escort Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace, they are incinerated. But it's in the context of that fiery furnace that Nebuchadnezzar looks and he sees a fourth man in the furnace. One who looks like a son of God. And Nebuchadnezzar, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of that fiery furnace without even their arm hairs being cinder. Without even smelling like cigar smoke. God delivered them. But the important takeaway, because as you know, many throughout the history of God's people have not been delivered from the fiery furnace, have often given their lives in the midst of the fiery furnace, <coughs> is that they were resolute and determined to only give allegiance to the true God. And here, shockingly, Jesus, in the context of the first century, is saying to his disciples, I am the truth. I am the true God. And the early church heeded that summons, heeded that declaration of Jesus because they would give themselves in the midst of the arena 
to ravaging animals, to the sword of the gladiators, to starving, to freezing to death. All of that in allegiance to King Jesus. And friends, I don't need to tell you, but there may come a time in our own lifespan where we may have to give up our freedoms, our comforts, in allegiance to Jesus being the truth. J.C. Ryle says, Christ is the truth, the whole substance of true religion which the mind of man requires. <clears throat> Without him, the wisest heathen groped in gross darkness and knew nothing about God. Before he came, even the Jew saw but through a glass darkly and discerned nothing distinctly under the types and figures and ceremonies of the Mosaic law. Christ is the whole truth and meets and satisfies every desire of the human mind. He is the supremacy of God's revelation and disclosure of himself. As Hebrews 1 says, long ago and many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, the truth. He is the supreme revelation of God. And friends, when we act like Thomas and we say, Jesus, we, we don't know where you're going, so how do we know the way? It's like we're walking around thinking we've lost our keys and they're in our pocket. <laughs> you ever do that? That's why I have air tabs on everything <coughs> so I could find stuff. you live life confused like Thomas, you're not anchoring yourself to Jesus who is the way and the truth. Some Christians, it seems like they're, in the words of Paul, they're, they're ever learning, ever learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. You don't have to go anywhere else other than Jesus. He is truth incarnate. Now, it's not that you study and research and try to grow in your understanding of the Scripture, but you don't have to search for something outside of the Scripture. God has revealed it to us. This should be a comfort to the believer. <coughs> this also, again, should cause us to die to both the smiles and the frowns of the world. A verse like this isn't going to win you the presidency of the United States of America. It might win, win you getting kicked out of Thanksgiving dinner, kicked out of family gatherings. But it's worth it for the sake of Christ. Well, he is not only the sole Reconciler, he is the supreme revelation, he is also the soul reviver. Notice this last statement in 14:6: I am the way, the truth, and the life. <coughs> I am the life. And again, you know this is a theme in the Gospel of John, right? 
I mean, this is the gospel that's famous for John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have what? Life. Everlasting life. John 3.36. He who believes the son has life. He who does not obey the son, the wrath of God abides upon him. Jesus came that we would have life. And again, the kind of grand storyline of the scripture this takes us all the way back to the garden of eden all the way back to the garden of eden where adam and eve were in the midst of the garden alive enjoying life with the creator and god said to adam in genesis 2 16 and 17 the lord god said to the man you could eat from any tree of the, uh, that is in the garden, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. For what? In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Die. God promised death as a consequence, as a judgment upon humanity for rebelling against him. And what did Adam and Eve do? They rebelled. And they brought death, spiritual death, physical death, separation from the creator, so much that they're driven out of the Garden of Eden and God places the cherubim with flaming sword guarding the way back to Eden. Because of your sin, you can't go in. Death. And so we're born spiritually dead. We're headed to a second death, the lake of fire. John in Revelation 20 calls it, 21. But Jesus comes to bring life. He comes through what we call regeneration or the new birth by the power of his spirit to make a person alive so that they trust in Jesus and they're united to him, the source of all life. And because they're connected to Jesus, they have the promise of eternal forever life with this great God in the Father's house, world without end. Life. He is the life. He is the source of life. He is the one who revives the dead heart. And again, the tragic story of man is trying to find a way back to life, trying to get back into Garden of Eden, trying to ram its way in, trying to climb over the walls, trying to get there by any means possible. But God, the Almighty, says, Jesus is the way back to life. My son, he is the way back to life. So again, friend, if you're sitting here and you've not yet anchored your life to Jesus, the life, do so. Why, why put it off? Why delay? Why think if you're a young person, well, I'll, do that. I'll deal with that when I get older. No. Now. Now is the day of salvation. Don't delay. The devil wants you to delay. The devil wants you to think, well, I'll deal with that sometime later. I got other stuff to deal with. I got, you know, job problems. I got all kinds of stuff to... No, my friend. You put it off and you may harden your heart. 
and wind up dead. And the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. There's no post mortem conversion. <coughs> and then Jesus says at the end here No one comes to the Father but through me. It's a universal negative. No one. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. I didn't write it. Jesus said it. John recorded it under the inspiration of Scripture. Now, I'm well aware that (coughs) this is very unpopular in our day. And so I want to spend a little bit of time equipping you to think through some of the common objections to this. Usually, the, one of the front-line objections to this is, well, how can, how can you say Jesus is the only way? I mean, you, you can't really know that this is true, that this is the absolute truth. To say that there's no absolute truth is actually a self-refuting statement. One author calls it a suicidal statement. Because all you have to do is say, is that true? (laughs) Somebody says, there's no absolute truth. Is that true? So ironically, the one absolute truth they believe in is that there is no absolute truth. Or no one can know any truth about religion. Is that truth about religion? No one can know anything for sure. You sure about that? <laughs> in fact, usually this comes across in a, in a very pious-sounding parable. Perhaps you've heard it. I, as far as I can tell, it seems to go back to a guy named John Godfrey Sachs, his version of the elephant. Perhaps you've heard it. One blind man falls against the side of an elephant. He's blind and he's groping. He's touching and feeling this elephant. And he doesn't know it's an elephant. He says, this is a wall. Feels like a wall. Another blind man comes and bumps and leans into uh, an elephant tusk. Ooh, long spear. Another touches the trunk and proclaims, Oh, wow, it's a snake. Another touches the knee, proclaims, Oh, the elephant is a tree. They don't say the elephant is a tree. They don't know it's an elephant. But, oh, it's a tree. Another touches the ear. Ah, a fan. The last one grabs the tail and proclaims the elephant is a rope. And... Of course, the point of the parable is, and it sounds very pious, right? We're all just blind people just groping around, and nobody can know for sure that it's an elephant. We each have our kind of different sphere, and, you know, Islam has a little bit of truth over here. Buddhism, Siddhartha has a little bit of truth over here. You know, the Mormons have a little bit of truth over here. Christianity has a little bit of truth over here. But we're all just blind people groping 
but we're not really arriving at the total truth. A couple problems with the parable. First of all, the elephant talks. What if the elephant said, hey guys, I'm an elephant. That was Kevin DeYoung's rebuttal. But it's true, the God of the Bible tells us. He's spoken to us. He hasn't left us in the dark. He's revealed himself both in creation and in special revelation in the scriptures. God says, it's me, I'm the elephant. But also, here's the self-refuting aspect of it. The person telling the parable knows it's an elephant. So while they're through the parable asserting uncertainty, you can't really know. They're doing it from the posture of certainty. I know it's an elephant, and you guys are all just groping at the tr- groping for the truth. But you can't have it both ways. Either we're all ignorant or not. Another objection. This is probably more common. <coughs> that is arrogant. You Christians, you believe Jesus is the only way? I mean, how proud can you be? Well, let's think about this for a moment. What is pride? Pride is the elevation of self. Pride is thinking much of yourself. But the, the Christian perspective of this, I'm, I'm not smarter than anybody. I, I mean, I can read. I can read what Jesus said. I believe God has said it. I don't know more than anybody. But God, the infinitely wise and all-knowing God, has said Jesus is the only way. And so if I say, no, Jesus, you're wrong, to me that sounds pretty arrogant. (laughs) No, Jesus, I know there's many ways, and, you know, I know better than you, Jesus. But I don't want to take that posture. I think the posture of humility is say, God, you know, if you wanted to, you could have come up with a bazillion ways, but you told us there's only one way, and who am I to reject what you say? And this really touches on something in our culture where we have equated certainty with arrogance. G.K. Chesterton, he was a cultural critic, and he was a brilliant cultural critic because he could see these coming these things coming from decades ahead <clears throat> and he wrote this book and i don't know it might be 80 years ago 60 years ago called orthodoxy 60 years ago maybe 70 by now he said but what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place modesty has been moved from the organ of ambition Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful of himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt. The truth is, there is a real humility typical of our time, but, it's so, but it happens that it is 
practically a more poisonous humility than the wildest prostrations of the ascetic. We are on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. He said that 65, 70 years ago. You see what he's saying there is we should be suspect of ourselves. We should doubt ourselves. But we shouldn't doubt the truth. And in, 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 in the culture of Chesterton's today, and how much more in all, our culture, to believe the truth, to be convinced of the truth, is, is said to be arrogant. But to believe in yourself, that's said to be, that's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And Chesterton's saying, we got it all backwards. And he's right. How about this one? Aren't all religions basically the same? The reality is is such a statement just reveals the ignorance of the person who says it, right? I mean, even you take three three or four major religions of Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Christianity. Judaism, pretty sure they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, okay? (laughs) Islam, they believe Jesus is the Messiah, but that he didn't die on the cross, he didn't rise from the dead. They believe Jesus, Judas, I'm sorry, was substituted for Jesus on the cross. That's kind of different. Hinduism believes that there's many gods that have incarnated themselves, but Christianity believes that there was only one time when God incarnated himself in the person of Jesus. It's really only a superficial understanding of the different religions that would cause one to deduce that they're all basically the same. How about this one? This is intolerant and unloving. Intolerant and unloving. How about intolerance? Well, this is, this is very important when you understand there's been a language shift when it comes to the word tolerance. The word tolerance in the early days of America, especially when, we talked, when it was talked about religious tolerance, it was the idea that, we, that, 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 that there should and ought to be freedom of religion. That... You believe what you believe over here. I believe what I believe over here. And I'm not going to shoot you in the head for not believing what I believe. Okay? I'm not going to beat you with a baseball bat. I don't agree with you. You're wrong. It's, it's terrible belief. But I'm not going to kill you. Okay? That was religious tolerance in early America. Religious tolerance today means something different. Namely, that... All truth claims about religion are equally valid except the one truth claim that says it's the truth. By the way, the climate of religious tolerance of today, are you feeling how tolerant it is? Cats are at each other's throat. Okay? It's not... And that's the irony, is, is that all this pushing of religious tolerance by today's definition hasn't created much civil discourse. How about unloving? Well, if love seeks the best good of its object, and if I believe that if you die without Jesus, you will go to hell, 
The most loving thing I can do to you or say to you is believe in Jesus. He's the way, the only way you can be rescued from hell. I think that's pretty loving. How about this one? It's wrong to try to win others to your beliefs. What's the problem with this statement? Is that a belief? Are you trying to win me to it? Well, hopefully I put some tools in your tool belt to think about responding to the folly of rejecting Jesus as the only way. Because the reality is, is it's good news. It's good news that there's any way. God didn't have to give a way back to him. But in the wonder of his kindness and goodness, he showed his great love that the way back would be the execution and resurrection of his own son. What an amazing God that this is the only way. Because no one has ever walked the face of this earth without sin. Because no one could qualify to be the great high priest, the mediator between God and man. No king could live perfectly and be a perfect representative for his people. No one could be the perfect revelation of God except the Lord Jesus himself. And God, in the wonder of his kindness, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. This is good news. This is not anything we have to be afraid of, embarrassed about. It's something we can declare from the treetop if you climb trees. There's a story Richard Phillip tells of Skip Ryan. He served on several projects in the United States, State, uh, United States Department of State. The working group to which he was assigned once held a briefing at the White House. The the meeting took place in the Roosevelt Room, a conference room across from the hall from the Oval Office. After the meeting, the State Department official in charge asked whether Ryan would like to see the Oval Office. The The official working place of the President of the United States, since the President was currently out of town, Ryan recalls two things about his visit. The first was the awe he felt at being in such a place. The second was that he could not possibly have entered the Oval Office unless he was taken there by someone authorized to bring him. Friends, if that's true of the office of the President of the United States of America, how much more is it the glorious presence of the Almighty God? You need authorization to enter. Jesus grants that authorization through him. You need to follow him through the door. Let's pray.